Hello, welcome back everyone. Well, today we have a amazing treat. Casey, we had a wonderful conversation today about friendship, activism, a bromance. <laughs> a bromance, yes. Uh, not unlike our own, I'll say. Yes. Um, yeah, we have amazing guests with us, Tony Ferriolo and Drew Levisser, two friends of mine, uh, I'm proud to say. And this conversation knocked us out. Yes, it did. It was a little emotional. It was just a wonderful conversation with wonderful people. I think we learned a lot about how two people can come together and share their skills and the end result can be something amazing that their community can enjoy. So I think folks can get a lot of inspiration out of this content, you know, maybe even see their selves reflected mm -hmm. and be inspired about new ways in which they can come together with their own network or even folks they have not met yet and start something beautiful. Absolutely. And I'll say, so we, when we recorded this episode, we, I th you know, I like to think that the conversation was so powerful that we just broke the technology. <laughs> it just sometimes, you know, there's a warble that you'll hear when you're listening. And truly, I'm not like it doesn't happen very often. No. And, and I just think that this conversation was so powerful that sometimes uh, it sort of shakes the room. Yeah, they didn't want you to hear the story. <laughs> they didn't want you to hear the truth. Hello, everyone. So Casey, today, we're talking a little bit about friendship. Talking a little bit about friendship. And I think me and you are friends. Of course we are. I talk to you more than I talk. I probably talk to you more than I talk to my partner. This is very true. I think we talk very often, every day, every day, all day. Friendship, activism goes hand in hand. And that's the topic of the day. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm surprised actually we haven't taken this on yet. And I'm excited um, that we are. And two of the folks we're talking with today are my good friends, Tony Ferriolo and Drew Leviser, um, who themselves uh, are good friends who have created a uh, foundation together, um, who continue to support each other in all ways of, you know, just being a person in life, but also in their activist work. Um, so Tony and Drew, welcome to Real Talk. Thank you. Um, so why don't we, you both have very long and accomplished um, resumes. You do. I mean, you, you all who are listening, you can't see this, but <laughs> they're also very humble people. Um, but Drew, let's start with you. Will you tell us, you know, who are you? What do you do? Sure. Yes. My identity, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Mm. Um, I'm so excited to get a chance to talk with Tony about our friendship too. So I just love this topic. Um, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And um, I currently serve as the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the National LGBTQ Plus Bar Association, a mouthful. Um, I'm an openly trans attorney. I've been practicing for about 15 years. Most of my career, I was the Transgender Rights Project Director at Lambda Legal, um, which is the oldest, largest LGBT legal organization. And yeah, I, I have a passion for trans rights. Um, I really love what I get to do now in the last three years is I get to bring my full authentic self to work, all the vulnerability. Um, I just presented a couple hours ago to an audience of 600 at a law firm. So I'm coming off that stress. Um, so I'm just trying to keep it real in life. And uh, yeah, Tony and I will tell you a little bit more about um, the Jim Collins Foundation, but kick it over to Tony. Thanks. And, you know, again, I'm super excited to be here. Um, I always love holding space with, with Drew and Casey and now Jamel. So it's really good to be here. So yeah, um, I'm Tony Furiolo. I, uh, I'm an out trans youth advocate and I've been working with transgender and non, non-binary kids for the past 16 years. Uh, after my transition in 2005, I, I didn't know any trans people when I transitioned and it was a very emotionally damaging time of my life. So after I transitioned, I, I thought to myself, well, gee, if I didn't know anybody, then the kids can't know any trans people. So let me start these, these groups. And so they've been running still um, and running very, very strong. 
I'm also the co-founder of the Jim Collins Foundation. But most recently, and I'm, I'm super proud of this, uh, I, I'm directing the Healthcare Advocates International's LGBTQ Youth and Family Program, which just started up about a year ago. And our focus is really to create a, a world where every child, um, no matter who they are, how they identify, is loved and honored. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into a little, a little bit about this within this talk, but um, lately it's been really hard to convince them that they're going to be okay. Mm. Well, so Tony, um, Jamil, I don't know if you know this actually, but Tony was like my first friend in New Haven. Oh. And actually, before we moved here, like some might find this a little bit creepy, but when I lived in Wisconsin, um, I emailed trans artist New Haven and Tony, like, whoop, Google search, like right on top. And then, so I'm looking, I'm like, does Tony have an address? I'm like really into the mail, you know, like snail mail, zines, comics. So, Tony has a P.O. box. I was like, I'm going to send Tony a copy of my book, write him a little note, like, hey, I'm coming to town. There's, like, not that many of us trans artists out there. Um, and then he wrote me back and was like, did you, was this you that sent me this? <laughs> and do you want to go out to eat? Um, and you, meanwhile, like, you were like, I don't know if this person is out of their mind, you yeah. know, like, uh, or not. But, it, like, we met and right away it was, like, a vibe. Um Immediately. I, I feel like I knew you and Kate for 20 years. It was awesome. And, and I guess I want to share this part of it because this meant so much to me that, you know, when we do this work and we do it full time plus, because that's yes. typically the way we roll, there's not too many people that don't need anything from you. Like you're typically always giving, giving, giving. And I remember when we were driving to the Hartford uh, Pride, uh, Kate and you were, Kate was in the back. We were, we were, I was driving up there and Kate said, so who's taking care of you? What do you? How can we take care of you? And it meant the world to me. It really did. So good people, good people for sure. Yeah. And it is, you know, and then I, you know, I'm Drew, I met you through Tony and I do admire your bromance. <laughs> I yeah. have to say, but I don't know if I know the story of how you two met. Yes. I, I guess, you know, <laughs> um, it, it's a very important, I, I'm going to say Tony's my best friend and I, I'm out in the world as like, do you know my best friend? Um, yes, he means very much to me. Um, we met, I think I was on a panel at Yale Law School and Tony came to to hear and I, Tony, you tell the story better. Do you want to? Yeah, because I wasn't even supposed to go that night. I actually, no offense, but didn't want to go. <laughs> I was just like, why do I want to sit in front of all these attorneys? I got better things to do. But anyway, a friend of mine was like, come on, I don't want to go alone. Come with me. So I ended up going and Drew was on the panel and he started talking about our community. And, and this was like in 2007, I believe. And I just transitioned in 2005. So I was a newbie to the community, but I was still already doing, um, you know, advocate work for, for the kids. And his passion for the community, I said to myself, oh, my God, I found my co-founder because since I had my top surgery, I knew I wanted to start a foundation to fund surgeries because the, the, the feeling of wholeness that I got when I looked in the mirror for the first time and everything matched for me, I said, there was no way that people shouldn't have access to this. So I, I went up to Drew, I introduced myself. He gave me his business card the next day because I am a procrastinator. I emailed him and here's, here's when I knew that we didn't know about this friendship. This was, this was like, you know, gravy. He said, Oh my God, I was thinking about doing the same exact thing. So as I was thinking about starting a foundation, so was he. So we co-founded um, the Jim Collins foundation and I, I got, I, I'm not sure I can't speak for Drew. I never thought I would have a friendship like this out of that. I mean, over the years, it's just been like, we were just talking earlier today, and we, we both always are very um, vulnerable with each other. And, and sometimes I don't know what I would do without him in my life. Same. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. So we met. The, the Jim Collins Foundation, um, the mission is to fund surgeries for trans people. And this was, we started that conversation at what, a picnic table in your ex-girlfriend's backyard or something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this was at a time where, trans people were not really on the radar, um, never mind any kind of funding. Um, we did our due diligence and talked to people in the community and they said, you know, people had tried to, to create something like this before and, you know, that a lot of people had tried and, and it didn't work out. And I think that I credit our relationship, our friendship, our bromance, if you will, 
with the success of the foundation. I mean, we worked, we worked so hard, but it was like the fact that it was two of us and we were taking care of each other. And I think Tony made the rule at the beginning is like, what was it like? We're not going to do this unless we're having fun doing it. And I think that's why it worked. I mean, we, we cared about each other and it created a sense of community. We would have, we started out doing open mic nights at, in New Haven, um, you know, raising like a dollar at a time. We know we were like every penny counts. And, and over the course of the year, we served on the board for uh, what, 10 years, we funded 20 surgeries and these are not uh, cheap. And it's not a popular thing to fundraise for. We can't go to foundations at the time. It was all personal donations. And I just think it was our relationship of trusting and creating our sense of community between us created a larger sense of community. And that's why it worked. Yeah. And I I also think one of the other reasons why it worked is that we made a commitment to each other to not listen to the people who told us that we couldn't do it, that it wasn't going to happen. We refused to listen to that. And at one point I got, I know Drew remembers this. We're at this conference early on. Like we didn't even have a logo yet for the foundation. And we were talking about it and somebody in the community stood up in the back and said, you're going to be giving up people a lot of hope, you know. And I remember Drew looking at me later and saying, wasn't that what our community needs is hope? So, so we got a lot of like negative stuff within the community saying it's never going to work, but we refused to listen to that. And that's why we succeeded too. Right. Yeah. And, and I also think it was the right time, the right place in the community need everybody just surged to, to make this happen. So that was, yeah. yeah and, and it was, uh, I will just say it wasn't all like bliss. I mean, it was very stressful also to blend your friendship with mm-hmm. doing a nonprofit work. It was like, and we were unpaid. So the, we both had full-time stressful jobs and we were doing this on the side and we were both so personally connected and personally triggered by this. Cause we'd both gone through like not getting the healthcare we needed and all that. So it was like all these things layered you know, it was a lot to navigate, but that's why I think we became so close. Yeah. We took care of each other. Hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot to unpack. Um, (laughs) Starting a friendship, starting a nonprofit on a really, really personal topic, but still remaining close. um, That's, that's, that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do. I think we always have the understanding that, listen, we agree to disagree sometimes mm-hmm. because we're two different people, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, listen, sometimes it didn't come off as, oh, Drew, I agree to disagree with you. Sometimes <laughs> it was a little bit more like, what the hell are you talking about? Why are you, you know, but then we always recovered from it. We always recovered yeah. from it. You know, we, yeah. we're human. We're human and we, and we understand that about each other. At the beginning, like when we, we would get so hundreds and hundreds of applications, like, and I think at the beginning, we didn't have any system set up. It wasn't digital. Right. I mean, it was like, we were, it was unbelievable what we were trying to do, but I just remember one of the most challenging things we went through together was that we with along with the other board members had the task of reading these letters where people were Mm. desperately saying, please, I'm hanging on by a string you know, and, and just to, that was so like, we know what that feels like of like not being able to get, have the money to pay for the healthcare that should be covered already by the insurance. And in my day job, that's what I was litigating. But in the meantime, we were trying to do something community based here to, to get some of the immediate need. So we would get on the phone with each other and talk each other down. I, you know, I remember those nights where we were reading the letters and calling each other crying because we were so triggered by it, you know, and I think because we both had an understanding of like, got to look at the big picture, it's going to be okay, we can't help everybody, you know, we could talk each other down and try to support each other. I mean, think about it, you got 200 applications in the first year, we only had enough money to fund one person, Oof. one person. And I remember saying this, why can't we help everybody? People are going to die. I mean, it was, it was really, really intense. And the one person we helped was, um, Drew, Drew Lodi, who collected cans for how many years? And he, he collected cans to save for his surgery. Oh, um, wow. And, and just a remarkable, remarkable person. And that was a life-changing moment for me when um, I, I was the person who called him and congratulated him that he got the, you know, the grant. And I said, oh, you know, I'm going to change this guy's life. You know? And I remember saying, um, hey, it's Tony from the Joe Collins Foundation. Congratulations. And I heard the phone drop and he screamed, Oh my God, you saved my life. You saved my life. 
And I just lost, I mean, I, I, I still to this day get very, very emotional about it. And he kept saying, are you kidding me? You're, you're lying, right? Are you, are you kidding? Every applicant that we've called has reacted the same way. They first, they think you're joking. And then the second thing is, well, how can we give back? How can we give back? How can we give back? And we always tell them, stay in the moment, enjoy the journey. You know, after your surgery and you heal, then, you know, contact us and you can help us out. But right now, just stay in this in this moment. But it was really uh, hard to select one or two. Even now, I know that they get hundreds, hundreds mm-hmm. of applications and they can't help everybody, you know? Yeah. And when uh, Drew, after he had surgery, he um, he gave back to the community. He um, actually, I think he got, you know, he lost like 100 pounds or something. And he started training for one of those Spartan sprints. And I had never heard of it. But Tony and I drove up to New Hampshire to surprise him. <laughs> while he was doing a sprint on the side of a mountain, you know, like jumping through fire and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and so we were there at the end and, you know, and he had raised money for the foundation with that. You know, it was, it was very emotional. Um, yeah. It, it sounds like because your friendship works so well, the work works well. Um, like this work wouldn't be able to be accomplished if you two bond wasn't so powerful. Almost like um, your friendship was meant to be so the activism can happen later. And to be able to accomplish something so touching, I'm sh- I can only imagine how mm-hmm. emotional and life-changing this work is for the people you touch, but also for yourselves, you know, to be able to give back to your community in such an emotional way must be um, really life-turning, not just for your friendship, but for yourselves individually. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, Jamil, I mean, I think about, I think about this a lot with us in the podcast and I think about, um, you know, we both say like, I wouldn't do a podcast if it weren't for you oh, all the time, all the time. Yeah. And yeah. there's, but then think about the things that we usually like, we talk all day, basically yes. like throughout our days, you know, no doubt, like Tony and Drew do the same. Most of the time we're not talking about the podcast. No. And he gets daily up hourly updates on my life. Hourly. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, and it, it, like, it's not always fun, but it's like what's happening in other areas of our life. Something we saw, something we're doing around the house, something we're dealing with family, TV show we're watching. I mean, just that kind of daily life stuff. And that to me is like, like having that foundation of a relationship um, is what makes it possible for us to do the podcast and to have conversations that we're having, even if, and, and you can't skip that part. Like if you're just like with, with this kind of work, um, like if you're just showing up and you're working, thinking about it, like I'm working a shift or I'm doing a task, uh, it, it's not sustainable in the same way um, because it's that, that depth of relationship that's bigger. It's much bigger than what you're actually doing. Um, and it sustains me as a person. I feel like also it's to trust. In order right. to like run this podcast or do some of the work we do outside of this podcast, you really need to have a lot of trust in each other because you're vulnerable all the time. Like maybe sometimes on the podcast and on air, but also just in real life. Like you're talking about vulnerable subjects, hard subjects all the time. So you end up knowing a lot about each other. Um, trials and tribulations, your personality, um, how you feel on basically every topic. That's what we do at The Real Talk. So it wouldn't be able to work so organically if there wasn't this deep level of trust. Yeah. So Tony and Drew, like, I don't think you have mentioned actually where the name for the foundation came from. Oh, well, I can answer that. Um, Jim Collins was my therapist. Uh, I, I, when I realized I was trans, I started having night terrors and, and really um, was really scared and emotional. Actually went to a beach to kill myself, but didn't. Um, and I started therapy and Jim Collins was the person that really helped me through the beginning stages. He was there when I had my top surgery um, and passed away suddenly um, in 2006, I believe. So when Drew and I were talking about naming the foundation, I just said, you know, this is how I feel about it. And I, Drew was just like, yeah, dude, I mean, yeah. Jim Collins Foundation kind of has a nice ring to it, too. Yeah. 
and I mean, he was, you know, somebody well-known in, and well-loved in New Haven. And it really helped us with our fundraising efforts because we started at the, the, the 1980s gay bar downstairs there. What was it? York Street. York Street uh, yeah. And every, you know, so we would center around that. But also for me, like, I felt like so grateful. I never got to meet Jim. Um, I heard about him. I feel like I wouldn't have the friendship I have with Tony if it wasn't for him. And I really believe in it's amazing to name a foundation like that after an ally who helped somebody be where they are. I've had lots of cisgender allies in my life who are the reason I'm here. And I thought it was beautiful. And it's it's the first time I'm hearing this story. I've heard this story, you know, many times of like explaining who is Jim Collins. But I just recently had the experience of losing my therapist, the one that helped me, wrote me my letter. I worked with her for 11 years, Nancy Kirk, um, and just found out she passed away in November. And I've just been grieving that. And I think I understand on another level of how important, especially for trans people, when you have that therapist who believed in you. And I mean, she's the reason I'm here, honestly. And so I wish I could start another foundation and name it the Nancy Kirk Foundation. I'm sure I'll find a way to like honor her life and legacy. But I'm very proud that we um, are, have been able to honor Jim Collins through the yeah, years. They don't prepare you for that. They don't prepare you for when your therapist dies. They, yeah. de- you know, it was uh, it was shocking to say the least. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things that um, you know over the years that was really hard about you know the bond, like you know, Jamila, you're saying about like we had this connection. Part of it was selfish because then we had an excuse to always call each other, talk. We had something, a project we were working on, you know, and that's a wonderful way to build a friendship. And I recommend it, especially for such isolation in our LGBTQ plus community. Find somebody, start a project with them, and you have a bond for life. But when we got to the point where we'd been doing this work for, I don't know what, 10 years and the burnout factor started mm-hmm. happening or had been happening. And, you know, you heard the dramatic stories. It was like that all the time. And at some point, I think, you know, both of us were realizing in order for us to sustain who we are in the work we do, we're going to need to make some changes. That was really scary because it was the basis of our friendship and I thought, if we're no longer doing this work together and we're going to step away and make way for new trans leadership, which we did, and they're amazing, yep. um, what will our friendship look like? I was scared. Yeah, me too. And it's something because we always realized from the beginning that the Jim Collins Foundation wasn't our foundation. It was our community's foundation. And it was time for us to step down and have this foundation have some movement. Ten years as a board president, ten years as Drew as the vice president, is a long time to serve. And I was the one, all transparency, I was the one who was like, I don't know if I want to leave. I don't know if I want to leave. I was so afraid that it was going to fall apart. I just was. And I know that, I mean, listen, uh, Jody Randall, who's the president now, we, 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 talked, we talked to her. I had all the confidence in the world that, that she was going to just keep this going. But I, did, I, just, I went to that place of, oh, no, what happens if it falls apart? Okay, now what happens? Drew, my best friend and the co-founder, is able to say, Tone, listen, think about it this way. And I, we had this conversation in a plane, forgot where we were coming home from. I think it was Vegas. I think it was Vegas. I'm not sure. <laughs> but we had this conversation. I'll never forget it because I had to sit there and I remember closing my eyes and thinking, how would it be not to have this responsibility anymore, you know, chairing a board meeting every month? You know, we had monthly board meetings, you know, and so I have to tell you that I, for my own emotional health, and I, it had, it had to happen. It had to happen. Yeah. Same. Same. Yeah. And so, I mean, now, anytime that I'm seeing both of you, we're always, uh, we're eating good food. We're hanging out outside. (laughs) Chilling. Going to party. Yes. You know, um, relaxing, which, you know, these are really difficult times to be a trans person, period, in in the United States, in the world. Not an easy time. Not to say it hasn't ever, I mean, it's not like it was glorious and then now it's it's hard, but it's a particularly tough time. And it's especially tough when you're doing trans advocacy work um, day in and day out. When, I mean, you're not just going to a job that you can sort of shut off, um, 
I, I, you know, I would imagine that you all have this stuff on your mind all the time. And there is a, it, it is very difficult, I find, to do um, advocacy work that's very present, that's very deeply personal, and to not burn out. Yeah, I was almost burning out. If you remember at my 17th birthday party, that was only a few, <laughs> about a month ago. Yep. Right. My trans birthday party. I was, I shared with everybody that night and there wasn't that many people, but I was going away to Kripalu because I was not doing well um, for myself because, you know, working with trans youth and everything that's happening in this country, even though mainly the kids I work with are from Connecticut, they're still scared about what's happening in Texas and Alabama and Idaho and they're still fearful and the suicide attempt rates are going up. So to be, to be able to have, someone to call and say, I'm really not doing well today, Drew. And having that person, you know, that that saves me. It saves me sometimes. It's getting easier. I mean, like, and, and you know what's cool? I'm just going to just be honest. What's cool about Drew is he never judges or questions me. Oh, dude, that's great. You're going to go to Kripalu? That's great. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's great. Do that. That's good for you. Good that you're taking care of yourself. Not like, why were you going there? Why don't you just like, let's go. Never questions um, how I feel I need to take care of myself. And that weekend really helped me. It really helped me. What, what I realized that weekend, and I'm saying this out loud because maybe I can help somebody. Is, you know, when you're working with a population that you have a similar journey with, right? So I was a trans youth. I just didn't know it back in 19. Excuse me. I... I realized that that weekend through meditation that my suffering is over. My suffering is over when I'm sitting holding space for them. And now I'm able to go back up to the psych hospital. So sitting there in the psych hospital, holding space for a kid that just tried to end their life. My suffering is over and I'm showing up for them to be that person to hopefully guide them to a better, to a better space. That helped me tremendously. You know, so, so knowing like, where where you where you were where you are right and and really the work and that balance of let's not talk about this today let's just go down to the beach and just hang out i tell you the most great best days of, of last year was taking my new beach wagon which i'm getting a new one drew don't worry about it it actually rolls out the same um and walking down the lighthouse park and just hanging out with drew all day all day without it without worrying about anything so balance is really, really key. And when you can do it with, with your best friend, it's even better. Yeah, I love that. And Tony, like he is absolutely on the front lines right now with the type of work he's doing and who he is in the world. And I, I worry about him sometimes. And, you know, I, it, you know, it's one thing like I'm doing trainings for the legal profession. And I, you know, um, like do talks at law firms and law schools and so on, but to be getting phone calls from youth and going into these psych hospitals and talking to kids, you know, when you've had your own trauma yourself, um, he is the best fit for that job, but how can we sustain the Tonys of the world? And, you know, so that self-care had, you know, for both of us became like a number one priority at some point in our careers where we were like, oh, there's this tipping point where you're like, yeah, I cannot sustain what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And in those strategies, it's like finding them day by day of like, what does that look like? I do this. Um, I recommend doing this with a friend. Like I have a, um, my friend Floor, who's in Oakland, we do a 90 day self-care um, challenge where every day we text our list of the self-care. We don't have to explain it. You don't, you know, it might, it might look like chocolate and reality shows or, you know, there's no judgment involved in it. It's just, what did you do today? Even if it's one thing for self-care and that keeps me accountable to myself that I, and I can look back at like my days and say, oh yeah, you know, I, I did the five minute meditation, you know, just little things that we can do that make you the center of, you know, of where your attention's going helps you become that person out in the world like we're doing. Yeah, it's interesting. We use the like the term self-care, but actually it's much more effective when it's a communal practice um, or like an ethic, whether you're texting, you know, what you're doing with somebody or just supporting other folks' well-being. Um, so it doesn't become like an extra thing for one person to do or like something that's always like something you do alone. Like 
it could be going to the beach with your friend um, that is quote unquote self-care for both of you. Yeah. I love that. Bring the chips. Just don't forget the chips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some, something I'm thinking about is, you know, a lot of people that does this kind of work, right? This social justice, diversity, equity kind of work. They have a full-time job doing this work. And then they do it as a side hobby too, right? Maybe they have a nonprofit. Maybe they have their own group. Maybe they have their own program or mentorship they're doing. Probably on a very similar topic as their full-time profession. And then any other hobby as well <laughs> has been dedicated to the same work. Um, even I, I find myself, you know, feeling tired within the work because it's all the same work. And a lot of times all of your friends you met through this work. And so... Your constant conversations is social justice, like from sun up to sun down. So how do you find balance in that for folks that may be struggling with when I wake up, I'm mentoring, I'm mentoring people, I go to work, I'm doing the same work, I go home, I'm with the community, I go to bed, I wake up, and I live, breathe, and eat this work. What would you, what would you say to these folks? Tony, don't you have that thing you say that you can't even look in the mirror to tell that to Yeah, sometimes like, I can't deal with trans so much I can't even look in the mirror. I'm like, I'm not even going to look at myself. I think it's important that, you know, for, for Drew and I, we promised each other that if we reach out to each other, if we need support, and we're not emotionally available to give each other that support, that we're going to tell each other, I'm not emotionally available right now. It's really important. You know, but, but, but Jamel, when you were talking, I was thinking about, <laughs> I think we were on the same plane ride and Drew says, do you realize that's the only thing we ever talk about is the Jim Collins foundation. Do you realize that the only thing we ever talked about when we got together was the Jim Collins foundation. We don't do that now. You know, I mean, I, I, as soon as we stepped down from the board, I think maybe it was like a month or two, we still did it. And then we don't do it anymore. Like we, we barely ever, we support it wholeheartedly by the way, but we don't talk about it. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like the my core work I'm doing right now, like what you just said, Jamil, is like, it's all about boundaries. I, you know, the beginning of my career, especially like not like a nonprofit lawyer, making low money, <clears throat> first one in the office, last one to leave, got to prove yourself. I had, I didn't, I did not learn the skill of boundaries along the way or at law school or anything. It's the opposite. Like, if you want to be a good advocate, the, the, what you're taught is that you're just going to give, 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 you know, and it's it's really a, a, an area of growth for me to just be practicing setting boundaries and to have somebody I feel safe enough to do that with. Like Tony, I can say like, you know, I, I can't talk about this. Or if we're at the beach with that thing, what did you do? Your, your beach buddy thing that I had to drag across the sand. And if you keep checking your phone and talking about work, I'll be like, dude, yeah, talking about work, you know, like we're at the beat, you know, and, and having each other call each other out on that, but also just for myself, I'm just working on, on boundaries in every aspect of my life right now. Boundaries are important. And there's, you can always be very kind and firm with your boundaries. What hashtag, what would Brene Brown say? <laughs> I'll do it. Casey, I still do it. I, uh, I'm, I got very, very good at setting boundaries because I knew, like Drew said, the only way I'm going to take care of myself is if I let people know what's okay and what's not okay. That's mm -hmm. all a boundary is. It's not a wall that you're putting up uh, in front of yourself. It's, hey, listen, this is what's okay and this is what's not okay with me. And they really work. But you have to be able to hold people to them, and that's a whole other level of it. You know, um, <laughs> Tony, if I had a bingo card, a Tony bingo card, one of the squares would definitely be what would Brene Brown do? <laughs> <laughs> And I put, I put the chip down on that one. Uh, um, so I'm curious, like, would you all share some stories about like what you're hearing from people right now? So you're in different settings. Tony, you do a lot of healthcare and school trainings. Um, yeah. Drew, you're with uh, law firms, law schools, um, like in that professional kind of environment. Um, Tony, you're working with kids, with parents. Um, so what is like, what's on folks' minds? Um, what do you think is missing from the public conversation, which is like a whole lot. Um, but what, for folks who are not in those spaces, um, what are, what are the conversations like? You want to go Drew first? No, go ahead. So 
couple of weeks ago, I had my preteen support group. You know, we're still doing it over Zoom to be safe. And, you know, towards the end of the group, there's about 15 kids and, and the age range is 10 to 12. Okay. And one of the kids said, um, Tony, before we go, can we talk about Texas? And I said, yeah, of course we can. Well, I'm scared. I said, well, you know, in Connecticut, you're, you're protected. I went through that whole thing. And he said, yeah, but I'm still scared. And I said to the group, how many of you are scared? And every one of them raised their hand. And I think that's important to talk about. Because even though they're sitting in a state where they're protected, they're petrified. Now, one of the kids in that group three days later had a meltdown. The mother, the mother uh, texted me and says, they won't let me call 211 because they're afraid they're going to take them away from me. Okay? Sad, 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 sad. This is a, an 11-year-old who is self-harming to the point that it's really bad. It's really bad. Actually, I believe they're, they just got out of the hospital. If we don't give children hope for a better life, they will want to take their lives. It, it, I'm telling you, I know people look at me and say, How do you, I've been doing this work for 16 years, trust me. I know that when I'm sitting in front of a child who's hopeless, the chance that they're going to attempt suicide or, or end up self-harming is very, very high. When you empower them to walk their truth and they're going to be safe and they're going to be fine and they're going to have a life, anything they want to be, they can be, we're going to save them. Kids in Connecticut are scared. I can't imagine. I have a family that just moved here from Texas. They've been only been here for four weeks. The, the, they have a teenage uh, trans son at, at 15 years old. They just contacted me today. Healthcare advocates, we're getting contacted by families multiple times a week, new families all the time. And the unfortunate thing, the common thread is, my kid is struggling, they're self-harming, or they just got out of the hospital, or they're in the hospital. These children should just be able to be who they are and not worry about anything else. And we're going to see the, the horrible ramifications of st trying to prevent health care that's needed for these children. Um, you'll see it with suicides um, and just awful, awful other things. And what is that statistic you always say about from the Trevor Project? About one affirming adult. Yeah, so so from the Trevor Project 2018 survey, um, one supportive adult in, in an LGBTQ kid's life cuts the chance that they'll attempt suicide by 40%. 40%. And I know it's true because I'm that one person sometimes. Drew's that one person sometimes. You know, when, when you sit, you know, I've just recently been working with, um, I got contacted by a school for special children. It's called Elizabeth Ives School for Special Children in North Haven. They had a trans kid there that was selectively nonverbal, but really didn't talk to anyone. Somehow he Googled me. So the school calls me and says, they, he came into our office, talked about you for 45 minutes. Will you come in, train the school and meet him? So I went in there and here comes this little guy, has his hair in front of his eyes, really postured in a way that, you know, you can tell he didn't want to really be there. And I said, well, hey, so-and-so, uh, -so, uh, nice to meet you. And he whispers to me, you helped me when I was in the hospital last year. My heart, I almost just bawled out crying. So I took him on as a, I took him on as a, as a client, no charge. I'm empowering him, right? All of a sudden, he ends up back in the hospital. Go to Liberty Street Hospital, and I was afraid to go up. And I said to Drew, this is the first time I'm going back up there in two years. Because one time I left that hospital, and I ended up in the emergency room because my blood pressure was so high, they thought I was going to stroke out. I was burning out, okay? But... My suffering, I'm no longer suffering. I kept repeating that to myself. So I go to the hospital, empower him, get him to smile, bought him a binder, a couple of my books. His, he lives with his great-great-grandmother, okay, because his other family members have abused him all his life. And his great-great-grandmother calls me up and she says, what the hell did you do? And I was like, uh-oh, what's going on? She says, I get a phone call from him saying, hey, can I get my hair cut when I get out of here? And she didn't know who it was. She was like, who are you? Can I, I'm going to get my hair cut because I'm taking my power back. Tony told me to take my power back. All right. So, so that one person can save a kid. So that's just proof. That little bit of a story. I love that. Tony is literally a superhero for so many people. And, you know, he's out there. Um, he, there's a documentary, a self-made man about him that came out. It's almost your 10 year anniversary. 10 year next year. Yeah. Stay tuned for the 10 year anniversary screening. And he hosted a reality show that, um, you know, that he he's getting, you know, contacts from people around the world because he's made himself visible and available and he's on the front lines. And I disagree, like, you know, I agree that there's just a lot of fear right now. Um, fear from 
you know, the kids also from parents of trans and non-binary kids, you know, hearing, getting the phone calls, you know, what do I do? Putting their kids in facilities because they just want to keep them alive. Um, And with my work, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of well-meaning people who really care, but they don't know what to do. And there's a lot of like fear and, and misunderstanding or just a lack of understanding of, you know, uh, the experiences of LGBTQ plus people, especially trans and non-binary people. So I, you know, like when I speak at large firm audiences, it's like, that's a powerful group, you know, lawyers make up most of the Senate and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it's a powerful profession that not all, not all the right people are in it. <laughs> Speaking of diversity. Um, but it's a group where a lot of people are afraid of making a mistake. They, they want to stay safe. They don't, you know, they want to step in it and to really get involved in, in making a difference. You kind of do have to take a risk. It's vulnerable work and, you know, getting back to doing diversity, equity, inclusion work. It's, it, it's messy. It's risky. It's, it's, you know, so, you know, I, I just want to share one little story that I'm, I'm running this pilot program for, um, trans and non-binary people who work in big law in the large global firms. And I'm facilitating a monthly meeting. It's closed and, you know, select, I'm trying to keep it, uh, small at this point. Um, but there are lots of people transitioning in the workplace during this time as well. And it's, it's been really powerful to hold space like that where people can connect um, from different firms and get to know each other and support each other. Creating a sense of community like that goes a tremendously long way. And I had this one trans attorney who just announced at work and is having all, everybody who's trans and non-binary in big law is, has a struggle. Like we all do. Um, But they said to me that this group means so much. I'm going to look back on this 20 years from now at my transition and this group will be a highlight. And that just says like the power of these little things that we can do, like what you all are doing with this podcast of just creating like, you know, a little vibe and a sense of community. And we get to feed off your friendship and people get to feed off our friendship. And, you know, um, it, it, it has this ripple effect of creating a sense of family. And I feel like that's the one thing that we all need most right now is some kind of, like you said, Casey, of just like, you know, plugging into community. That's what keeps us all alive, especially during these hard times. Man, y'all keep making me want to cry. And then I'm like, oh, I'm I got to talk. I gotta I'm, talk. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. Storytelling. That is storytelling. You read your bio and you got choked. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, read my, I did something for um, a university <laughs> last night, a keynote. And the person that was introducing me was a parent of one of the kids that comes mm-hmm. to my group. And I don't know, I, he rewrote my bio. I was, I, 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 he finally introduced me. I was like, I never cried over my bio before in my life. I was sobbing. Yeah. Almost. Really? Yeah. He did a good job. You got to do some stuff, my friend. Who is that uh, guy? Wow. He's awesome. Well, it is really, I mean, those of us who are trans know how vulnerable we are in our community and how difficult and how also amazing um, it is to be trans. Um, and that's what like all of this, these, this legislation right now is so hard to see because it's like, man, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable people, those are the ones that you're going to attack and make life harder for. Um, and it, it is really, I find myself, I have to check out sometimes and just take a break because, um, cause it's so hard. It's very, think- very hard. And what do you say to a kid? Yeah. What do you say to a, a child? And a lot of people ask me this, so I'm, I'm saying it, but I'm going to give you an answer. Um, that looks at you and says, I just don't want to live anymore. This world is, why would I want to live here in a world that doesn't accept who I am? I always just tell them, well, I want you to live and I love you. And if I have to be freaking out there, you have to be out there with me. Okay? <laughs> and I usually make them laugh, but seriously, like if I have to be out here, you ain't leaving me alone. All right. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> well, okay. So yesterday, um, I heard the the trans artist Casils um, do a talk, and they asked this question. That I, I wrote down because I, I was like, "Perfect, I'm gonna bring it to the podcast." Great. Um, a question that they themselves consider, which is along the lines of what we've just been talking about, which is, "How do you live in a world that hates you and still feel joy and power?" 
And that applies to a lot of different communities. Um, And part of it, you know, Drew is like what you were talking about. Um, Little things in creating a sense of home and a sense of of family and connection. Um, And Tony's like, you have like a very unique brand of um, care. It's not like tough love, like in in the traditional sense, but it's like got that sort of Italian feel to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But like, how do you do that? Like, because... And and I so always a part of that first is like I find spaces that are just spaces of love and care, and I live in those. And I try to not let as much as possible in my personal life, try not to let that like any space for haters. I keep sort of a, a bubble around my like who I put bring into my social circle. So that I don't necessarily feel that experience in going through the world, even though I know that in many spaces that is the case. I agree. I mean, I I feel I do the same thing. I surround myself with people who love and honor me um, as much as I can. Uh, But also every day I I hold gratitude for something. You know, I, 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 every time I walk into my home, I hold gratitude. Every time I go outside and I I can smell the salt water, I hold gratitude. Got to remember and, and living in the moment and not living in that, oh, my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is super important these days, right? Because that's where stress lies is when we're rethinking what happened or if we're projecting or assuming what's going to happen. That's where the stress is. If we live in the moment and hold gratitude, um, it's a little bit easier. Yeah. That, I love that question. Um, it makes me think like, I, re- I remember when I was probably at my greatest struggle early on in my transition, I remember kind of saying out loud and, and holding this inside myself of, I'm going to fucking survive this. And they said I could swear on this. So that's why I just want to say <laughs> I just had this adamant feeling of like, the world doesn't want me here. You know what? I belong here. It's this kind of like you know, fuck you, I'm going to stay and I'm going to survive this and I'm going to become a lawyer. I'm going to get all the tools I can for my own personal selfish survival and I'm going to use it to help everyone else survive. And, you know, I want to prove them wrong. I think, I don't know where that came from. I think I've always been kind of like that. Um, But I also feel like part of what keeps me going, I stay open and I, and I, part of doing this work as we all know, is that we're going to bury people along the way. You're going to lose people. If you have your heart open, you are going to experience the grief and loss of people dying by suicide, people getting killed. The list every year at Trans Day of of Remembrance, one in the first year when I knew somebody, you know, the just the amount of trauma and grief that comes with the territory of being this person is tremendous. And what shit, what I channel of like, what keeps me going is I think about the people who are no longer here, the people that I have buried along the way and that they would want me to keep going and I'm doing it for them. And a lot of them have an even more, you know, uh, adamant, you know, you know, I channel their energy around like, fuck you, we get to be here and trans people belong. Um, and I owe it to them. And so that's who gives me energy is, is, you know, our ancestors and people like, you know, people I miss. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think about this sometimes that um, sometimes just you existing is revolutionary in itself um, and is an act of protest, you know, not necessarily um, having to do all these huge, amazing things and, go out and step in front of the picket line and, you know, lead a march. Um, Sometimes just a person standing in their identity and being true in that is a protest. Um, And so when I think about, because there's so many ways in which people are a part of communities that are hated and vilified. Um, How do you thrive in that? I think the first thing is just purely existing, you know, waking up every day and maintaining that, um, protesting that. I think about also, um, I used to say this to myself when I felt like, when I look around the room and I was like the only black person in this hyper academic room, um, or I walked in a room and I knew I was like the only first gen person here. 
or if I was just in rooms that didn't feel like they held me, you know, in so many ways, because there's so many ways in which a room doesn't hold you. I, I would say to myself, you know, I don't come alone. I come with my fathers and their fathers and their grandparents. You know, that, that my angel poem, you know, I, I stand as one, but I, I come as one, but I stand at 10,000. Like, even when I'm by myself, um, there's a laundry list of legacy behind me that we all stand on. And we stand on it from different communities. Um, but I think it's important to put that in perspective when you think about how do you thrive in a world of hatred. Um, yeah. And then I think about like meeting people like you all, right? Like there's so much community, even though it feels so isolating. I think about that all the time, especially with the queer community. It's almost like everyone's in their own bubbles and they on their own self-discovery journey. And then one day people get there and it's like this need to go and find others like you and the need to find out who you are, the culture behind it. And then when you start talking to people, down the street that are doing this kind of work. I have been amazed myself these last couple of years talking with people like you. I would have never imagined so much work is happening down the road. So even if it feels like hatred in your purview, you'd be surprised how much love is happening down the road. So it may be worth, you know, sticking at a rooftop to look over and see past your pain and see a little further down the road something more positive may be happening. I love that. Yeah. Now you're making me cry. <laughs> well, it's okay sitting here. Let me tell you about Jamel, though. He has this... I'm, not, I'm just going to out you right now. He has this <laughs> idea about, like, when folks come out, like, they should get a welcome basket, like, from the yeah. community, you know? And we were talking about... Um, I know, wouldn't that be nice? It's like, yeah. welcome to the community. He was like... You know, like, so what were we putting in the basket? Okay, hear me out. Okay. <laughs> you know, when a person comes out, maybe like someone buys them this basket, or maybe we, someone like a council, a group, a board of directors, somebody bring this basket, okay? In this basket, you know, maybe there is a book about Stonewall. Everybody, we got to start there. Everybody got to know that. Everybody got to know that. We need a pair of um, hand, knit, hand knit mittens. Hand it in the basket. Put it in the basket. Okay, we need a good house plant, a real good looking house plant. Put it in the basket. You know, just different, different things. Maybe an introduction to movies, books. Okay, your local community center should put a pamphlet in the basket. Um, resources in the basket. You know, just a, snack. a little snack. A little snack. Cheese. Cheese. Okay. Cheese. Oh, yeah. Folks should come together and start offering baskets as a welcome. Baskets would be fabulous. I, think I just so. had to tell y'all that is like this is like Jamil's spirit is like let me welcome. Yeah. yeah. Casey's always asking me like, oh, have you seen this movie? Oh, you haven't seen this movie? It's well, like, he wasn't. He what wasn't movie was he twenty years ago? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All these movies. I mean, I've never heard of these movies, Casey. I don't know these books. He's like, no, you have to know these. No, I don't know any of these things. I didn't get my basket in the mail. No one sent me a basket. Um, so I've been waiting on a basket ever since. That's awesome. Uh, well, Tony and Drew, this has been so fun. Next time we should do, uh, well, we should go to the beach and just not work. Yeah, there you go. I'll there we that. go. I'm, I'm, um, I'm telling you, let's set a date. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or a few. Or a few, yeah. But we like to, one thing we like to do with guests is to, um, you know, radically reimagine what the world could look like. So in your wildest imaginings for trans people, we know that we wouldn't create the world as it is right now. But what is your your vision of, of how things could be? I think one of the things that Drew and I said when we started the Jim Collins Foundation is we're starting this foundation with the hopes that we will business that people will need to have access the people have access to the care that they need so if i had to think about the world that i would like to see is that every trans person no matter how old they are would get access to medical um things that they need that they need individually with no pushback you know families can raise their children and honor their trans and non-binary kids with no pushback 
because we're, I, I think that in, in a perfect world, the uh, 51% of suicide attempts among the trans and non-binary youth would not exist. Mm-hmm. And the only reason, the only way that's going to not exist is if we take care of everything else that's, that's making that happen. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, eliminating all the systemic oppression would be wonderful. Um, but I also <laughs> like to think about what Tony, you often remind me, and I think I've heard you remind a lot of people about like when talking about trans people, like what else are you? Like that, yeah. it, that doesn't have yes. to be the center of your identity. And I think you coach a lot of kids around like, okay, that's part of your identity, but how else do you identify that to me, a world like that would be where, you know, we all get to kind of think about all the other things that, about ourselves that we'd like to be living in. And it doesn't have to be the centerpiece, um, a stressful part. I love the days or moments or even seconds that sometimes where I forget that I'm trans mm-hmm. and just like a person. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, so that I would wish that upon everybody. Yeah, I think I wrote that in, in the sec- first or second book. I said, I want trans youth to p- think about being trans like I think about being Italian. Okay. I see a cannoli. I remember I'm Italian. All right. It's not right in front of my face all the time. It's not right in front of my face. That's a very Italian thing to say. <laughs> hey, but that's the truth, right? So that's even like, Drew, sometimes I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm, I'm trans. I love those moments. But yeah. When you're doing it professionally, when you're doing it professionally, it's, it's those moments are, are unfortunately not too often. You know? <laughs> Casey, what do you say? Well, I. Like I'm signing on to both of your visions. Um, and sometimes, you know, this is on my list of, I have a running list of like, got to make this as a comic. And one of those is those moments of like, sometimes I do forget that I'm trans. Well, kind of like, kind of often. And then I'm like, oh, wow. And then I'm like, well, am I really? Like, how do you even know? And then it's like, oh, this is the, I'm living my like authentic self. I just had this, this moment of like frictionless existence. And um, where you're just a person. Yeah. And, and you sort of forget and then it comes back but that it's a, it's a strange feeling it's a really a strange feeling and I imagine folks in other communities um, have that have that too but I guess like I just really would love to see freedom around gender expression in general like freedom for people to try on different identities um, it's so I mean, I think we're making some progress, but like masculinity, so rigid, you know, and so policed. And there's not a lot of like freedom or flexibility. Um, There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of violence. Um, And so I would like to see a world where people can can try on different things, can be different ways, um, and don't have to feel necessarily, you know, stuck with one identity that they can, I mean, it's a natural human thing to um to try things like we see it with little kids they try on different stuff different ways of being play different roles um and for there to just be freedom in that way and acceptance of people for how they are as opposed to you know shaming and ostracizing and um attacking how about you jamil Oh, I, I feel like we have covered a wide range of bases here. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start a little smaller. Um, reimagining and kind of wishing. I, with one wish that every person finds a, somebody, like a, like a Drew to a Tony. Like everybody gets their somebody. Everybody would be a lot happier if they had somebody like y'all. That's true. So they find their one person. I also, um, thinking along those lines, because I agree with everything you all say, um, are just freer. You know, there's less grieving. I feel like there's a lot of grieving and celebrating. I want more celebrating than grieving. Like, we keep having to lose generations of people. Um, And I I sit on that sometimes. So less grieving, um, more celebrating, more happiness. Mm -hmm. Those feelings. You know, more hugs, something, something warm like that is what I'm feeling. Yeah. Well, Drew, Tony, you both, you really like, you're very humble, fun, kind people. And also you make a tremendous difference um, in the world for communities and, and, 
you know, and you know, frankly, you don't even know the extent of the difference that, that you make for people, and you'll find out some of it, but I think most of it, honestly, um, you'll never know. But it's a huge um, contribution to our world and to me. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. This is really great. Oh, it's a blast. Thanks for having us. Honestly, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, the storytelling here was amazing. <laughs>